billion searches every day, accessing 100 trillion pages in over 150 different languages. 20 years ago, who could ever have imagined the magnitude of what Google has done? Now, maybe you don't know this. Anyone know what a Google is? How many of you math people out there? It's Okay, wait. Does she really know? What's a Google? Oh, you're saying, no, it's a number. Google is actually a number. Anyone know? Okay, wait, wait, wait. We have, I'm going to go to an adult. Sorry, not that I don't try. Okay, yes. Yes, one followed by a hundred zeros. There you have it. So what this means is when you go and search Google, they spelled it wrong. Actually, that's true. So, a mathematical term for one with 100 zeros. I am impressed, Teresa, that you knew that. While most people are likely to pick a number like 14 or 98, Paige and Bryn picked a Google. Now, why? Because that's their vision. Chief engineer at Google says this about the company's founders. It takes a lot of confidence and courage to be huge. It's rare to find people who think on such a grand scale and are able to create a great product at the same time. So tonight, sorry, this morning, little habit there. This morning we are going to talk about worship. But when we think of worshiping God and you see this huge number that we can't even imagine, God is infinitely larger. Amen? So we are worshiping a God that is beyond our comprehension, and yet he has defined himself in scripture and in actions in ways that help us to know a little about him so that we can worship him. So how do you worship, though, a God who's infinitely bigger than a Google? So as we talk about our next trait of a healthy church, it's inspiring worship. But this morning, I want you to think about worship as more than music. Worship is more than a style of music. And worship is more than a particular few instruments of worship. Worship is much broader than that. It's not just music. And yet worship remains one of the largest areas of conflict in a church. So we're talking about a healthy church And yet, we fight over what is inspiring worship. Someone once quipped that when Satan fell from heaven, he fell into the choir loft. (laughs) And with the worship wars, whether you have choirs or not, it sometimes too often feels like it's true. Now, I just want to say right here at the outset, as the interim pastor, I don't have an agenda to bring a certain style of worship into the church and say, I like this, so this is what we should do. This is what churches this in these places are doing. That's not my job, is to change a whole bunch of the, the styles and the music and all of that, but we will look at it and talk about it. But I want you to think in this broad terms that worship is where we proclaim the glory of God. We proclaim who God is, this infinite God that's bigger than a Google. So inspiring worship, we're going to start today, can only come out of our hearts. If we're going to really be inspired, then it has to come from the spirit who lives in our hearts, right? So that's where it has to begin. 
And we're going to go back to that beginning point. No matter what the form, no matter what the style, worship is something that starts in your heart and it isn't just here on Sunday morning. It's all week long. It's in your life in various and many numerous ways. So let's start by looking at Ephesians 5, verse 18. I'll bet you've memorized this verse if you're in Awana. Well, maybe you haven't in Awana. I don't know if... Daniel, where are you? Do you memorize, do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit? That's our verse for today. Maybe you're very familiar with it. But here we are. We're talking about worship, and the passage is going to talk about some ways that we praise and worship God. But don't you think it's a little curious to start out talking about drinking, drunkenness, when you're going to talk about worship? But I want to pose to you something to, to think about. Drunkenness is a form of seeking something outside of yourself. Drunkenness was a big problem in the New Testament, just like it is today. And so here we have people using drugs, recreationally drugs, and drunkenness. And in many ways, they in that looking for something beyond themselves, there is an unconscious search for God. They don't know they're looking for God, but they are. Because a lot of people say, why do you drink and get drunk? I want to escape. My life is unpleasant. Or I'm looking for something beyond myself. I'm looking for a purpose. And so really, it's a search for God. A lot of things are a search for God in inappropriate, harmful, and destructive ways. And so they're seeking meaning in their life. And so... Here's the contrast in verse 18. Don't look for God in this material world over here. Look for God inside in the spirit world with the Holy Spirit. Now, pleasure can take over your life and it can obscure God. Recurring drunkenness, because this, so when it says be not drunk, it's talking about an ongoing pattern. It can lead to this word that we don't hardly ever use, at least I haven't heard it used much, debauchery. Other versions call it dissipation. I don't use that one much either. But really what it means is an unrestrained life of excessive indulgence, okay? And again, it's a pattern of, of excessive indulgence. It's worshiping a God of pleasure, of filling yourself up with something more that you don't think you have. And so life is literally wasted. You spend your life wasted worshiping pleasure. Now, I grew up in a home where alcohol was abused. And so as uh, as horrible as you think that would be, that I would never want to do that, guess what I did when I was a teenager? I went following after that same pattern, that same trap before I met Jesus. I was going to church, by the way. I just didn't know Jesus. I wanted to find something that gave my life purpose, that gave it meaning, that that was beyond myself. And without ever realizing it, I was searching for God, but my search was headed into a pit. It wasn't climbing a mountain to find the true and living God. So here we have a contrast in this passage. It's no coincidence that alcohol is called Spirits, right? You've heard them called spirits. And you say, oh, that's just a coincidence. I don't think so. I don't think so. In contrast to drunkenness, when you are filled with the Holy Spirit, your life will be controlled by something. 
whether you want it to or not. So will it be something material or external, or will you fill it up with how God created you with that God-shaped vacuum in your heart to be filled with his spirit? Your life will be controlled by something. And the Holy Spirit, when he comes in and, and he fills up your heart and he takes over more and more areas, he directs your attention to God, back to God. He helps you see areas of your life and it never he never stops showing you, but he shows you areas of your life in which you maybe aren't worshiping God as fully as he wants you to, that you've held aside some area. This is my area, God, don't touch it. I'll worship you, I'll do all these other things, but I wanna hold on to this, like a grudge, for instance. I'm so angry at that person, I'm never gonna forgive them, I'm not gonna let it go, and God's spirit comes in and says, you wanna worship me more fully? You're gonna have to let it go. I don't want to. And then he works on you, patiently, slowly, over time. Occasionally, he drops a ton of bricks on you to get your attention. But he will not let you go because he wants you to fully worship God. So, a man recounted that when he was eight years old, he says, my, the doctors diagnosed my youngest sister with a life-threatening neuromuscular disease. And not long after that, my father began weeping in church in every Sunday service. He didn't cry out loudly. He didn't buckle over with his face in his hands. Not that those are bad guys. But his tears flowed and his voice cracked when we sang. I never asked him why he was crying. I didn't know what he was thinking. I still don't. But something important happened inside him during worship. This went on for several years and tapered off. My sister now today is a healthy wife, mother, and special education teacher. Years later, my wife Debbie contracted chronic fatigue In three weeks, her life changed from a graduate student and adjunct professor to confinement in bed with a low-grade fever, severe short-term memory loss, and barely enough energy to take a shower. Still, somehow, most Sundays, she made it to church. During worship, she sat and wept the same way my father had some 30 years before. I figured the same thing was happening inside her that had happened inside my father. The Spirit was praying from the inside. The Spirit was working on hearts. Deep changes were occurring. Debbie is well now and is a school psychologist. So worship really starts right here. It flows out from a a full inner life that that God is filling up. Then the more God's Spirit fills us, the more we experience God. Now, how does that work? So I brought props this morning. Here we have a cup. Now, if I want to get everything out from inside the cup, see, it's empty, but there's air in it, right? So if I want to get the air out, I just put this pump in here, and if I could, like, make a closed container, I could start pumping, and I could pump the air out until there was no air left inside, and it would become a vacuum if the glass didn't shatter from the inside first, but let's just assume I get everything out. But now I've gotten all, and I've gone to a lot of trouble to get all of this stuff out. But there's an easier way to get the air out of this glass, right? I can just 
fill it up with something. And all that air is gone. Oh, so much easier. Now, what is this illustrating? It it illustrates your heart. Your heart can be that empty glass and you try by all your own efforts, I'm going to suck out all of the bad habits, all of the things I shouldn't be doing. And with your own efforts, you try to get everything out. But let me suggest, what are you going to have once you get all the bad stuff out by your own efforts if you don't implode first like the glass? Because see, here's the problem is that, you know, when I have a vacuum in this glass, I can't pour anything out. But now, look what I can do. I can pour out so much stuff into another person out of my heart when the Holy Spirit is the water that fills up your heart. Instead of you trying to suck out all the bad things in your heart, let him fill up your heart with him. And then you aren't so focused on on performing for God, but God fills you up and those things go away when the Holy Spirit fills up your heart and you have a lot more to pour into someone else or pour into God in worshiping him. And so there's the illustration, being filled with the Spirit. He fills up your heart like that water so you can pour out to God in worship and you can help other people. Now in our life, we try so hard to get rid of those things and and there's such an easier, more straightforward solution. The more spirit in, the more you can pour out. So on your outline, if you're following along, number one is worship flows from a spirit-filled heart. Worship starts right here in your heart as you are worshiping and the spirit fills you up, then it allows you to worship God and not just, again, on Sunday morning. You see, worship is not just about activities, And I find it so easy to let things fill up the spaces of my life, to crowd my life with so much activity. I don't have the time and the energy to worship God. Anyone else ever feel that? Am I the only one? I'm all up here by my... Oh, there's two of you. Okay. So us three will get together and talk about that. Even as a pastor... I've come on Sunday mornings and, and, you know, there are so many different elements that's going on and, and, and things to keep up with. And, and I get like, okay, I ran. I really hope this goes smooth. I hope the media works, I, you know, the music, the sound system. And as I shared a few weeks ago, the power doesn't go out or something like that. And you're worrying. And I get so worried about the details that I find it's hard to worship because I'm kind of hoping that's go, wow, oh boy, they didn't get the words right on the slide. And the slide's missing, the words are missing, what are we going to do? And, and why can't these people get this right kind of thoughts? And I'm all distracted, I'm not worshiping, I'm trying to like solve tasks and figure it all out. See, that isn't what the Holy Spirit has in mind. When things are distracting your worship, then you're not focused on God. So what things distract your worship? Let's just say when you come in here on a Sunday morning, this one part of worship, not all, because, you know, you can go walk in the woods tomorrow or today and worship also because you're focusing on God. But what distracts your worship? Does a style distract your worship? Or maybe you have a preference of what should happen. I shared in Sunday school class that someone in my last church was upset because we didn't do a benediction every week. 
You know, and saying you go out and be the church is not a benediction. That just doesn't count. So they're all distracted. And, you you know, I want to ask them, like, is that all you got out of church? Was there a benediction or not? And so we we think, this thing should happen in church, and it didn't, and I'm all distracted. So what things are filling up your heart right now at this very moment? What's filling up your heart? Maybe a few of you, I can't see you, you're like on your phone. Maybe you need to be on your phone. Maybe something else is happening and and that's okay. I don't want you to come and perform. But what's filling up your heart so that you can pour out the Holy Spirit in worship to God because he's waiting. He's sitting, waiting for us just to praise and worship him and look to him. And now it's like, gosh, God, why does he have to have so much? But, you know, it's us that are the beneficiaries. God really doesn't need us. He chose to have us and love us and wants us to pour that out because it binds us to him. So be not drunk with wine, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's the start, the foundation, the beginning point of worship. Now Ephesians 5.19. So we go from that verse to some forms of examples of worship, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Okay, so I hope you can see in here that Speaking means worship is more than music. Worship can be when you speak to someone because you talk about God and showcase and spotlight who God is. So you can have readings. Those are worship, testimonies, dramas, liturgy, teaching and preaching can be forms of worship. And worship can include our conversations, as I've mentioned, in every day, not just here on Sunday after church, but every day of your life, every week of your life. Worship is anything that proclaims or praises God. So is God a natural part of your everyday life and conversation? Do you talk about him just... Because he just comes out, not that, okay, now I'm going to switch gears from this part of my life. I'm going to now have a God conversation over here. And then it just flows out. Karen is great at that. When she would teach in a school full of people from all over the world that had different views of God, and it just came out of her. It wasn't planned. She didn't wake up in the morning going, I need to talk to so-and-so this day about this thing and, and bring this up, and I'll try to insert this into the conversation. I'm not saying you can't do that, and it's wrong. But for her, it just flows out of her in a natural kind of way. Does that describe how you talk to people? Your everyday conversations? So psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making melody. Let's break those down a bit. Psalms were songs structured like Old Testament psalms. Personal, emotional expressions of praise and lament sometimes. Now, over the years, I've heard people look at contemporary Christian worship music and say, it's just so me-centered. It's all, you know, it's me and this and it. But you know, when I looked through the Psalms, I found about half of them were me-centered. And so, you know, it's, it's what a Psalm often does in lamenting, complaining to God, help me with this, or praising God. And then there's New Testament hymns. Now, we think of hymns 
differently than what this was, which is fine. These, they're legitimate ways of worshiping God. But our hymns generally are from the last few hundred years. They're very doctrine-oriented, and often the hymns through the church and after the Reformation were because the people were not literate, and they didn't have Bibles because they couldn't read, and even if they could afford a Bible after they were printed in the printing press, they, they couldn't afford it. It took too much money if they even could read. And so the way that, that, that churches taught some people some doctrine was through songs, through music. And so it's a completely legitimate form. But people might say, well, see, hymns, they're, they're said in Ephesians, but it's a different kind of hymn. This is a hymn that is about exalting who God is. It's a very specific focus on, on just saying, this is what God is like. And spiritual songs then would be more broadly any kind of song with a spiritual message. So that could be a huge variety of musical expressions available to worship God that include traditional hymns, that include contemporary choruses. Then singing. It says singing and then making melody. Singing can be done also in a variety of ways. We saw some of those today. We saw like we sing as a group, right? We heard people play instruments. We could have, we've had in the past, uh, Phil Mapes sang a solo. You could have, excuse me, duets, trios, all kinds of different ways. In other words, variety and creativity. And often what might happen in in some of the Old Testament, they would have uh, antiphonal singing. And if you look up in, in Nehemiah 12, they got up on the walls that they just built up and half of the congregation was on this side and half was on that side. And they sang back and forth. They would sing sing a line, sing it back or however they did it. There's responsive, you know, kind of things that you can do in in singing or speaking, we could say something, say a line of a psalm, I say it and you say it back. These are all different ways of speaking and singing and we can have dramas even in the speaking part. Everything that focuses attention on God and uses creativity. Now this last phrase, making melody, literally it means to pluck or vibrate through touch. So it isn't necessarily vocal. It could refer to playing a stringed instrument like a guitar. And so there's lots of variety and musical expressions in worship. And God isn't limited to saying, well, I need you to sing. I need you to just sing. Can't play. And there's like the whole denomination that's Christian that doesn't believe musical instruments should be in churches. Okay, that's fine. But just know that, you know, find a variety of ways to worship God, don't let yourself be limited. Now, let me up the ante a little bit. Let's look at Psalm 150, verses 3 through 5. There's many expressions in here. I want you just to look at all of those expressions of worship in Psalm 150. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute which is kind of an early guitar, and harp. What do you think of that one, Gretchen? Do you like praising him with a harp? She likes the harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe, not smoking pipe, a plain flute kind of pipe. 
Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. And just a couple of comments at this, to look at this list. Worship can be loud. It doesn't have to be, but it can be. It's okay if it's loud. And I had a, when we lived in a building and we worshiped outdoors, and so we, we had bands with drums and guitars and stuff, and this Muslim man that owned the building would say, you know, why is it so loud? Worship is supposed to be quiet. And he said, but Psalm 150 begs to differ. You know, Israel was very exuberant and expressive. I kind of wondered why a Middle East man didn't get that. Worship can be loud. It can have rhythm and a beat. And dancing in worship originally meant to twist or whirl. So they weren't waltzing when they danced. They were doing more like a modern dance. I know that might be bad news for some of you, but, you know, it, they whirled and twirled and, you know, they, their whole bodies were into this. And when we worship, we had Africans if they weren't intimidated and they would, especially when it was just Africans in worship, there was lots of dance. Lots of dance all over. And when they took the offering, they danced up to the front to put something in the bag. And we say, hey, why don't we try that with the, with the Caucasian congregation? It's like, nope. <laughs> they won't be worshiping. They'll be like, I can't believe they're making me go up in front of everyone, dance, and then they're going to see if I give money or not. I mean, how rude is that? But they danced. For them, it was a form of worship. And so worship has lots and lots of variety of expressions. I'm not telling you you've got to like them all. I'm not much for dancing because I don't have rhythm. <laughs> and one time that they made me dance and then all that, they had lots of laughs and jokes. And Oh, look at Pastor Steve. He was doing like this. And it's just it's like, this is why I don't do it. So just so you know. But... You don't have to like all these forms. You may not like it loud. You may not like a clashing cymbal. It might really hurt your ears and such. But don't tell the people that love that that they, they shouldn't like it and it isn't proper worship because Scripture disagrees. Now, one more element of worship in Ephesians 5.20. It says, Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So worship also, not just proclaiming who God is but and what is done for that matter, but involves thanking God, focusing on what he has done and is doing right now and just to say, God, thank you for this. And so sometimes when I am feeling all twisted up, I just start off with praising who he is and then thanking him for all the different things around me. And, and it's amazing. It starts to just kind of unbind my heart to, to relax a little. Thanks, giving God thanks is a huge part of worship. Even when circumstances are challenging and maybe especially when they're challenging, thankfulness is helpful to express worship. So number two on your outline, worship has a variety of expressions. A variety of expressions. It starts from a spirit-filled heart, but has a variety of expressions, and then they can be very culturally adapted. So worship is not about a style. It's about a heart attitude. When we come to church, we don't come to do God a favor or do the pastor a favor. We come to experience God in faith community. 
and we realize that different people have different styles. So we honor one another's preferences in worship, even when it isn't your cup of tea. We focus our attention on who God is and what he has done, not on whether our personal preferences were met that Sunday. So our closing illustration and then a comment Max Lucado makes about this particular story. The favorite wife of Indian Emperor Shah Jahan, and by the way, there was a period in India's history where it was Mus- the Muslims had taken over. So Shah Jahan died. And devastated, he resolved to honor her by constructing a temple that would serve as her tomb. Her coffin was placed in the center of a large parcel of land, and construction of the temple began around it. No expense was spared to make her final resting place magnificent. Anybody ever heard of this place? Oh, look, he got his hand up. What is it? Very good, Taj Mahal. And here it is. This is what he built. So as the weeks turned into months, the Shah's grief was replaced by his passion for the project. He no longer mourned her absence. Now the construction just consumed him. And one day he's walking across the construction site. His leg bumps into a dusty wooden box. And the prince brushes the dust off of his legs, ordered someone to throw out that box that was in the way. Shah Jahan did not know that he had ordered the disposal of his wife's coffin. Now forgotten, hidden beneath layers of dust and time. And the one the Taj Mahal was intended to honor was forgotten. But the temple was erected anyway. How could someone build a temple and forget why? Could someone construct a palace and yet forget the king? Now for Max Lucado. He's going to punch us right in the gut. Max says this, You can tell the people who come to an assembly of worship who remember the slain one, Jesus. They're wide-eyed and expectant. They're like little children watching the unwrapping of a gift. They're servants standing still as the king passes by. You can also tell the ones who see only the temple. Their eyes wander, their feet shuffle, their hands doodle, and their mouths open, not to sing, but to yawn. For no matter how hard they try to stay amazed, their eyes start to glaze over. All temples, even the Taj Mahal, lose their luster after a while. The temple gazers don't mean to be bored. They just, they like the church. They, they don't mean to grow stale, but still something is missing. The Jesus they once planned to honor hasn't been seen very often. Those who have seen him can't seem to forget him. They find Jesus often in spite of the temple rather than because of it. They brush the dust away and stand ever impressed before his tomb, his empty tomb. So are you wide-eyed and expectant when you come before God? Do you come to worship service in awe of God or are your eyes a bit glazed? Do you look forward to spending the time with him during the week to refresh your spirit and make that vital relational connection to let the spirit pour more into your soul so you have more to pour out? As a faith community, let's climb to the top of the tallest spiritual mountain and worship a God who's infinitely bigger than a Google.